1: Richard and I wanted to dive in deep on each of the major smart home platforms, talk about their capabilities, intricacies, technologies, and the differences between them. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Oh. Oh
0: I'm Richard Gunther from the Digital Media Zone. Welcome to The Smart Home Show. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host Adam Justice from ConnectSense. Hey, Adam. Hey, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. Lots going on, but uh, we're going to try and keep our focus on tech today. And um, today, we're going to talk a lot about the different digital assistants and the smart home ecosystems. That they support. We're going to compare them head to head and focus on their suitability to control and automate your and to a large extent our own homes. So I think this is going to be a fun conversation.
1: Yeah, looking forward to diving in. So to start off the show before we get into the smart home talk, uh, I have a question for Richard, which is uh, where do you live and how did you end up there?
0: Huh. So I am. Uh, someone who left my hometown as soon as I got my first job out of college. And, uh, you know, no negative feelings toward home. I just knew that I didn't want to grow up in the suburbia where I lived. And when I got a job in, uh, I guess it was, well, I'm not going to mention the year. It was a long time ago. My first job out of college was in the Washington, D.C. area in Northern Virginia. And I have lived in this area short of very short, like under a year stints in both Indianapolis and San Francisco. But almost always I've spent time and lived most of my life in the D.C. area, most of it in actually Washington, D.C., And then about five, no, it's been seven already, about seven years ago, my partner and I moved out to the Annapolis area, which is kind of a a suburb of D.C. itself. And we've been out here. uh, We moved out here because his business partner and their kids moved out. He is their godfather, and so we wanted to be close to the kids. And I wanted to live on water, and we managed to accomplish both of that by coming out to Annapolis. How about you?
1: I thought it was interesting. You said uh, you know, you didn't wanna you didn't wanna stay where you where you grew up and, and the, the place where you where you, you know, uh went to high school and all that. I was kind of the same way when uh grew up in the western suburbs of Chicago in a suburb called Naperville. It's like the third or fourth largest city in Illinois. And uh I was just kinda over it when uh when I was done with high school, <laughs> I was like F this place. I'm out of here. See you later, uh, Naperville. And uh, went off to college. And then um, after college, sort of flirted with the idea of living downtown Chicago. And there were kind of two things that were working against us at the time, which is my girlfriend, quickly thereafter, fiance had a dog and having a dog in the city is a major, major limiter. And we both had cars too. And we both worked in consulting. So we weren't around during the week a lot. So paying like twice as much to live in the city for a place that we were not (laughs) going to be at didn't make a ton of sense. So we kind of hopped around the suburbs a little bit. And ultimately, once we had kids, it made sense to get them in a place where the schools were really good. And we ended up back in Naperville. So, <laughs> as much uh, as much uh, distaste as I had for it as a as a teenager, um, I realized it's actually a really great place to raise children and great schools and all that. And so, um, we bought a home here about five years ago. Um, and, and I really enjoy it. So it's um, it's nice. We live near the trains. We can get into the city. We're about 30 miles west of Chicago. I can get into the city in a half an hour on an express train. Nice. And so that, that makes it really easy. Don't do it a lot. I do it every once in a while, um, but not a lot lately. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. So, yeah, if you have a question that you want to... How us open the show with, um, you can always send those questions to us on Twitter with the hashtag AskAdamAndRichard.
0: All right. Well, let's dive into our conversation. And we're going to start this off like we often do, kind of laying the foundation. So our first segment today is going to be talking about and comparing the different digital assistant platforms and specifically the capabilities that they offer in terms of smart home management and smart home support. Um, the second half of the show, we'll talk more about their, their different features and how they compare in that area. So let's start with the digital assistants. There are really three main players here, Amazon, Google, and Apple. And each of those main players has their respective voice assistant. Now, I may shock you here. I am going to say her name. We think we've pulled this off in a way that will prevent it from actually causing your devices to do anything. But the voice assistants for Amazon, Google, and Apple are Alexa, the Google Assistant, and Siri, respectively. Now, on the smart home platform side, Amazon also named their platform Alexa, Google's platform is known sometimes as Google Home, but if you get a Works With badge as a manufacturer, you're certified as working with Google Assistant. That's a little
1: bit confusing. I would say the platform is Google Assistant for sure. Um, that's really what they branded it all under, and their device is Google Home.
0: Got it. And the app experience as a smart home User, the branding is Google Home. So that's, I think that's kind of confusing. I have a hard time with that. And a lot of that's just because they're like, they have just very defiantly put their feet in the sand and said, we are not coming up with a name for our assistant. (laughs) And then on the Apple side, we have HomeKit. HomeKit is the Siri driven ecosystem that supports smart home on Apple's platform. So it's hard to keep track of all these different brands, all these different names. Also worth mentioning, Microsoft has Cortana. They have backpedaled furiously in any of the home-oriented stuff they did there. So I believe that if they're not already disabled on most platforms, Anything that allowed you to control your smart home through Cortana will be disabled shortly. And then Samsung, of course, has Bixby, which is limited to Bixby or Samsung devices. I think you can get a Bixby app, but I don't know anybody that uses a Bixby app that isn't using Samsung devices. Actually, I don't know anybody that uses Let's be serious about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I, you know, maybe, maybe Microsoft's just waiting until they can have like the full Hololens version of Cortana, and then they'll put some more development back into it. So.
0: Oh, absolutely, because everybody's going to want to wear one of those things.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: All right, so let's let's kind of turn back and look at how these things all got started. For Amazon, Alexa really got introduced as the lady in the Echo tube. So you bought an Echo device that came out roughly around November 2014, and Alexa was the assistant that's on board. It came out supporting, you know, limited smart home stuff, switches, bulbs, stuff like that. It didn't do a whole lot at the time, and they eventually built that ecosystem over time.
1: Yeah, and a limited number of manufacturers, too. It was really only people that they were working with directly, uh, like Philips Hue and Wemo. Yeah. Right.
0: It was the big brands. IFTTT, I think, was one of the originals. Um, And, of course, that extends their capabilities quite a bit. But it, it was a very tight circle of initial devices and manufacturers.
1: Also worth limiting that an original Echo device you had to be on a like special list for, and it was like this slow rollout beta sort of thing. It wasn't a, a generally available device. So even though it came out in November 2014, I would say it was well into 2015 before really people were able to just buy them on Amazon.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, on the Google Assistant side, Google Assistant kind of came out looking a whole lot like a Me Too product because they announced at Google I.O. in 2016 that they were coming out with this Google Home device and it would have their assistant built into it. Curiously, this had nothing to do with Nest, which they owned at the time. I think that raised a lot of eyebrows at the time since that has changed. And... I have to believe that some of the origins of this were in what Google was trying to do years back with their Google at Home program, but nothing ever really became of that. So I I get the feeling that they were kind of pushed into getting something out there with the Google Home devices because of the echoes that Amazon came out with the year before.
1: Yeah, I think... You're saying this sounded, felt like a lot of a me too thing. I think they saw what was going on at Amazon and the momentum that they had and, you know, largely copied what worked from that platform. And since then, they've been able to diversify and kind of make it their own. But largely, I think they were targeting a lot of what Amazon was doing to try to, you know, kickstart it and, and get it going.
0: Well, and by the way, guess what Google already did really well? Voice recognition, searching for results and answers to questions, out of the gate, the responses that you got from your Google Assistant were far better and more varied than, I would argue, even than what you can get from Alexa today.
1: Yeah, I would say, um, you know, we're going to talk more about our stuff later, but the one thing I definitely use Google Assistant the most for in my home is asking those complicated questions. Right.
0: Yep. Yep. I would agree with that. And then HomeKit was initially announced at WWDC in 2014. That event occurs in June each year. And it was built on top of Siri, which was an acquisition from a third-party company. Siri was actually an app that I had on my iPhone well before it was something that Apple owned. And their idea, or at least the way they presented it, was that you had voice control of stuff in your home through the Siri platform that they had already previously released. Didn't actually come into fruition until... The next year, June of 2015, and at the time, just like before, it was only a handful of initial manufacturers and devices, Lutron, Ecobee, Insteon, iHome, and Elgato, now known as EVE, that branch being a separate group now, EVE, that was it. And I, I think you've told the story about how even before those devices hit the market, your product was already certified.
1: Yeah, our uh, our good old badge of honor. I have lots of war stories from this from 2015. But uh, yeah, our badge of honor being that we were the first to ever get certification. Um, but unfortunately, since we had never done a mass market product in China, uh, you know, we were behind on some of the manufacturing stuff. So um, I think we released in october november of 2015 so we were a little bit behind that first wave but pretty closely thereafter
0: and all of these other manufacturers already had what i would consider to be like not mass market but popular consumer brand products already in market yep so they had that bit of a leg up there now let's take a look at the the way these platforms are implemented and I think, Adam, you probably have much better insight into this as a device manufacturer than most consumers would. Looking at it from what I know about how these are set up, the Alexa platform and the Google Assistant platform seem to be fairly similar in how developers might approach it. Essentially, you're using APIs that they make available to you, and you're either releasing a skill in the case of Alexa or an action and some other stuff in the case of Google Assistant. Is that a fair summary of how they're laid out?
1: Yeah, I would say um, there's kind of two avenues, though, probably in both cases, uh, where there's Uh, smart home-specific APIs and ways to address smart home devices. And then there are custom skills, which you can do to do all kinds of crazy things. These are, in both cases, use cloud-based APIs. So I think one of the things that Google definitely copied that uh, the Amazon ecosystem was so successful with is they didn't require you to do anything different with your hardware. If you could talk to the internet, you could talk to Alexa. So um, by doing this, they enabled a lot of people to write integration with Alexa by uh, just connecting via their cloud. And so, you know, Google did that as well because it just lowers the barrier to entry to getting connected to that ecosystem.
0: Got it. Got it. Yeah. And, I think the thing that's really interesting with them is that, like you said, in addition to their smart home APIs, then they have these other things that you can just build that are custom. For the most part, I think that's kind of where HomeKit diverges a little bit. HomeKit seems to be built around this idea that we, Apple, know and define what every different type of device that you can control through HomeKit is and let you know what you're capable of doing with those devices. With those devices, then, if you want, as a developer, you can build other, say, attributes and capabilities on top of the framework that we provided you.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think from an engineering perspective, the first two, Alexa and Google, uh, like that's my my cloud and software engineers that are doing that work. HomeKit work all happens at the firmware and device level. So there really is, I'll go into a tangent, but there really is not a lot done at the device level to support Alexa and Google. uh, With the with the exception being the Google uh, local API. But uh, from a HomeKit perspective, that's all done on the device. And that's mostly to do with how HomeKit talks, which is on the local network.
0: Right, right, exactly. And that's probably the biggest differentiator between all of these, is that unless you're talking about remote access which is really the only time that you're kind of getting uh, using the internet at all here, HomeKit stuff is all local control.
1: Yeah. And I think when we talk about privacy later, that's going to be an important piece of that. But yeah, that's to say also that in the HomeKit scenario, they control all the remote access. Right.
0: Right. Now, if you're some form of hardware manufacturer and you need to get your hardware certified as working with one of these platforms. They all have their own respective certification processes, right? And I think you've mentioned that some are more painful than others.
1: Yeah. So we'll, we'll start from the most painful down to the least. Uh, Apple is definitely the most painful, Um, originally they were certifying devices uh, by their engineers. Um, Now that process is done with a third-party lab in most cases, unless it's like a new, uh, they, you know, they make up the rules, but for the most part, it's done with a third-party lab um, who does all the certification. And, you know, the objective of certifying devices is to make sure they comply with the standards such that you have a good solid experience. And so we're going to talk about that more later, but I think that's one of the benefits that comes from this. So, you know, that, that process can be grueling. I think some of my, uh, some of my war wounds are from those very early days where (laughs) they were actively, Developing the standard and so uh, I always compared it to like uh, playing a video game level on hard that you you get a little bit further and then you die and then you get a little bit further and then you die and so in some cases they'd be like alright go fix these three things and then we'd fix those three things and then they'd, they'd rev the standard and we'd, we'd, we had fixed the three things oh but nope, nope now this requirement's here okay gotta go fix those two things And so that's literally what we were doing, working very closely with them, our Wi-Fi manufacturer and our team to do that. And so I think being a small agile team is why we were that first to certify. We were also working really closely with the Wi-Fi provider um, and the folks at Apple. So some of that process was more painful than others, I would say. I don't know that we've ever success. I think actually on the inwall outlet we've we passed on the first time through. Uh, every other time there's been multiple trips to certification. Nice,
0: that's uh, that's quite a. I think that's quite a badge.
1: Yeah, and I think we've certified now. Uh, we have some of our own devices, but we've probably certified six or seven different hardware devices with some of the partners we've worked with and things like that. So we've learned things along the way. We've gotten a little bit better at it. And I think Apple's also made the process simpler and better along the way. And I think important to note, like you're sending in that hardware the first time. And then as you update it, you can run some self-certification tests and things like that. So you don't have to send that in every time. A lot of that is automated down the line, but that's, I think, a bit of why why it can be a little bit painful. If you want to have a works with Alexa badge, I think you can actually create a smart home integration. And if you don't want the works with Alexa branding, you don't have to send anything in. Huh. I, don't, don't quote me on that, but I, I think that's the rule. But if you want to be able to say works with Alexa, have the badge, have the marketing, all that stuff – then you do have to send it into a lab. It's very similar now to the Apple process. They work with a third-party lab, have to run it through certification. Google, when the last time we did it, ha- you did have to send it into a lab. They've now since made it a self-certification process. So they've simplified it. Uh, you don't have to send them any hardware anymore. Interesting.
0: All right, well, let's talk about hardware. Let's talk about the devices that specifically that kind of host these assistants or the devices that you use to access these ecosystems. And again, we'll start with Amazon. On the Amazon side, they build Alexa into Echo devices like speakers and displays. It's built into Amazon Fire tablets and Fire TV. It's built into the... Dash Wand device, if you remember that. I have one of them hanging in my pantry. It is built into third-party devices and speakers like Sonos and like the Ecobee 4 thermostat. So there are lots of ways that you can interact with Alexa. Not all of them are through Amazon-specific or Echo devices. You can also use apps to access Alexa like the Alexa app. How many times am I going to say this name that, that I'm <laughs> usually really cautious of saying? I'm tripping over it every time I say it. And the, the apps are available not just on iOS and Android, but you can even get a Windows implementation of Alexa that you can use. It's amazing all the different ways that you can access this assistant.
1: Let's just put it this way. Amazon will let you put Alexa into anything they can, they can possibly make it work with a microphone and a speaker. So. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. Including remote controls. I have a remote control that has, has it built in. So, similarly, the Google Assistant is built into Google Home, now branded Google Nest products. So, like the Nest Home speakers and displays... You have Android TV devices that have the assistant built in. Android phones obviously have the assistant built in. And there are apps not just for Android, but also for iOS. I'm not aware of anything that you can run on your desktop that allows you to access Google's assistant, though. And then finally, on the homekid side, Siri is built into iOS and iPad OS, TV OS, Watch OS devices, HomePod, not any actual displays. You mentioned TV OS, but it's purely Siri voice. That's the only integration with HomeKit is using the remote to call up HomeKit commands through Siri. There isn't any way of actually interacting with HomeKit on a Say an Apple device uh, that
1: has a screen, and there's like a there's a special designation for the HomePod and any Apple TV four or later, and you can also use an iPad as this as a home hub. So this is a capability they added. I don't know many iOS revs ago that allowed you to have these fixed devices to use as remote access points in the house, and also to be able to run automations. Correct.
0: You know, I, I we're probably going to get an email message or a tweet from somebody that, in fact, the HomePod does have a screen. I would argue that's ornamental <laughs> more than yes. anything else. So, you know, I've really come to like the Google Home Hub, or the now the Nest Hub, that I have. I think it's incredibly useful to be able to interact with your assistant not just with audible cues but also with visual feedback.
1: Yeah, I think it would be cool if they had like a a mode you could put an iPad in that would just make it, you know, basically one of those devices, you know, like a like an Echo Show or a Google Home Hub. Yeah. And you could just sit it in your kitchen or, you know, wherever you wanted it and and have some of those functions. They
0: could create a a custom Apple stand for it that would cost (laughs) a ridiculous amount of money. (laughs) I mean, we have a plan for them. This will work. Let's talk about the technology that these different ecosystems support. So in the Alexa ecosystem, basically you can control any. Technology that can be bridged over IP through the cloud. Natively, it also supports ZigBee. Now, you mentioned local APIs on the uh, Google side. Presumably, there must be some APIs available to ZigBee producing product partners to be able to enable this local integration that they have on the Alexa platform too.
1: Yeah. We looked into this a year or so ago and um, you know, they do have a spec available and things like that. And you have to support the full Zigbee, uh, you know, approved standards and some of that. But I think worth mentioning is like not all echo devices have that Zigbee radio in them. I believe all the modern ones do. At one point, they just released an Echo that, you know, was like the smart home version that had Zigbee in it. And I think now they've transitioned to where all of them have that have that capability.
0: Yeah, I don't think any of the devices that I have have that capability. And I'm pretty sure that the, the Flex doesn't have it. And I know that the five inch display doesn't have it. So it is kind of confusing that some devices support it and some devices don't. But along those lines, then let's talk about Google. Google Assistant can control pretty much the same, any technology that can be bridged over IP with cloud connectivity, or it can control some Bluetooth devices natively. Again, not all of the Google Assistant or Google Home devices now called Nest Home devices. I still trip over that. Not all of them actually have this Bluetooth native capability. But this, I think, is this Bluetooth thing, I think, is fascinating because the argument I've always heard about Bluetooth is that you can't just have One vendor's Bluetooth connect to some other vendor's Bluetooth smart home stuff and have it work. It doesn't work that way. It's all secure and everything, and but they pulled it off. They're doing it now with the C by GE bulbs, and I know other manufacturers that are working to add that capability.
1: Yeah, I think it it works pretty well. And um, just kind of an interesting side note I wanted to talk about, when we started looking into their local API, I learned a lot about how the Google Assistant, Google Home devices actually work. And they're actually basically the same family as Chromecast devices. So a lot of how they operate natively is very similar to a Chromecast and they run Chrome OS or some flavor of it. So um, it was interesting to me, you know, the, the deep technical is like, you know, you're actually writing JavaScript and that kind of stuff to control devices there. So very web centric like stuff, which my developers that were very familiar with JavaScript Liked and it was very comfortable for them, but it was kind of strange to me that something interfacing, you know, natively with a device was was using web languages.
0: Yeah, but I, I'm really impressed by what they've done there, and I hope to see that capability expanding. Now, on the HomeKit side, here's where it's all different. They can theoretically control any technology that's bridged over IP. They. Apple impose limitations on how they define that.
1: Yeah, I mean these are you know natively they can talk via Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and Ethernet, and then if you have a hub controlled device via Zigbee, Z-Wave, something proprietary, you have to have some sort of hub in the middle that then talks to IP on the the HomeKit protocol.
0: So bridge devices, hubs themselves that combine multiple vendors' products potentially. Although, I don't know that we've ever seen, I have to think about this, I don't know that we've ever seen an actual implementation of a third-party product integration yet. I think the first opportunity for that is going to be that abode security system where they're saying still that at some point in time they expect to be able to certify certain z-wave
1: devices that connect to that here's how here's this caveat and I maybe have said this on the show before but it's an important reminder any hub that's certified with Homekit, all of the end devices that are connected to that hub, must be certified under that implementation. So you can't just create a hub that'll connect to anything willy nilly because of the security model of HomeKit. They want to test all those individual devices. So generally that requires a manufacturer to certify their devices and all their endpoints. One hub we worked on for a shade manufacturer, we had to actually send Apple a large selection of shades, a comical amount of shades so that they could (laughs) test all the different, um, you know, iterations of what worked with that hub. So that's why you're never going to have somebody who just has a Wi-Fi to Zigbee hub that will work with any Zigbee off the shelf device.
0: Yep. And that makes sense for the way they're approaching this. Now we've talked about this before, but really None of these things are really hubs or require a hub. Apple now does, like you mentioned before, require that you have an Apple TV or an iPad dedicated in the house to be available for external control or to run automations. But all of this stuff is either sending out local signals from the different devices around your home or your phone, or sending signals to the cloud to then control those things.
1: Right. And I guess important to note, too, that the Apple Home Hub thing, if you didn't have a HomePod or an Apple TV, and you just wanted to be able to use HomeKit when you're home, you couldn't run automations, but that would work fine. That's how HomeKit worked for years until that piece was introduced, you know, you could run it on the local network when you were on the local network. And if you weren't on the local network, you couldn't, you couldn't necessarily access it.
0: Right. Right. And I, I, again, I think that's that, that's the thing that so differentiates Apple's solution is that local control of everything. Let's talk a little bit about the different interfaces that we would use to work with these different ecosystems. And by that, I mean, how do you as a customer interact with them? There's obviously voice on all of them. We talked about how they all have voice assistants. Some of them have screen interfaces integrated with their voice assistants. All of them have a form of app control. Amazon and Google's approach has really been, let's put cheap speakers everywhere around someone's home. While Apple's approach has largely been, oh, well, Siri's always on you, whether you're wearing a watch or toting your phone around or you have AirPods in, Siri's always around. Or you could have one or two of our expensive speakers in your home to talk to her, too. I don't think they use that exact pitch, but, you know, that's
1: the gist of it. Yeah, we forgot about a Hero S or whatever that runs on AirPods. So there's another way to talk to Siri. (laughs)
0: There you go. So, you know, if if we look at the different um, apps that we mentioned, they each have their own. There's the Alexa app, there's the Google Home app, and the Home app. We'll talk a little bit more about them and the capabilities that they offer in our second segment. On Apple, it's interesting to note that third parties can develop apps. You're not just limited to Apple's own app. In fact, when HomeKit first came out, they didn't even have an app. Which still just baffles me.
1: Yeah, I think they were working on it it just wasn't ready. But uh but yeah, so a lot of us put a lot of time into our apps early on to support everything and only to be crushed by their eventual uh implementation there. But yep. I digress. And the other, I think, unique thing about Apple that, you know, you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I think they're unique in that you can also set up automations such that, you know, you can do if this if, you know, if I open this door, then, you know, do this thing or or those kinds of actions. I would say that's also another interface.
0: Yeah, I I think you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll talk more about the automation capabilities that each ecosystem offers in the next segment, because I think the way they approach it, they each do it a little bit separately. And I think the way they approach it gives Apple a serious leg up there. Now, before we go into the specifics of controlling your home, let's take a look at privacy. Certainly, all of these companies have faced some recent privacy buzz and concern. Amazon, you know, there are many concerns about your customer data. For example, all of the news articles that came out about Ring and what were they doing with the video and... Were they surveilling things that they shouldn't be surveilling? That can be a concern for many customers. And Amazon is really pushing their trust factor with consumers because you are, if you subscribe to something like Amazon Key, which I would argue is built upon their smart home control platform, you are literally giving them digital keys to your home. That's yeah, not me. That's crazy to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not me either. I'm not doing that. Not happening. Now, on the Google side, look, Google already knows everything about you. Now, with stuff in your home, it's going to know more. And, you know, I look at this as, you know, it, it knows when you're home or away or sleeping. It knows where you go. It knows if you've been good or bad. I, I just, <laughs> I, I have just learned to deal with the fact that Google knows everything about me.
1: I don't, and you know, I know you can do that data dump from them too. I don't even, you know, I'm putting my head in the sand on that one. I don't even want to know. Going
0: through Google's location history is a fascinating and somewhat scary exercise. But yeah. it's also incredibly useful if you want to use that data and the results that it tailors for you when you ask it something are specifically built around the fact that, oh, you know what? He goes to Home Depot three
1: times a week. So, yeah. it's useful and I'm willing to make that trade off. I think with any of these, it's a tradeoff. It's like, are you willing, to, do you want um, certain... Features And are you willing to trade some of your privacy for those things? And I think that's just something we all need to be aware of and try to keep that in check to the extent of which, uh, you know, we can before things get too out of whack. Yep.
0: Now, approaching this from the complete other side of the security and privacy thing, Apple has from the beginning been all about privacy And their platform was built on, I would say, severe security constraints, even initially to the point where they had the hardware chip requirement that many manufacturers are still using because, frankly, it's just easier for everybody involved. I think what's interesting here is that while everything that they have done has been built upon this Privacy and security model: All your data is local. It's tied up in your uh, secure, their secure enclave, and you have the the uh, cloud keychain that contains the information about your home. They don't actually have access to that. That to me is amazing. And then they kind of threw us a curveball when they introduced HomeKit Secure Video. Where they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to offer this platform where camera manufacturers can store their video that they capture securely encrypted in our cloud.
1: Yeah, I thought this was an interesting approach. And, you know, basically, I've always taken the stance that I think Apple is the most serious in this space about privacy and security. And different people, different cultures all have different views on on privacy. And, you know, they really wanted to give an option for those who are most concerned about their privacy. I had a really interesting conversation with somebody from Elgato Eve, whatever it's called now, because they've been HomeKit only. And I was like, "Really, you know, why why HomeKit only? Like you're not you're you're missing out on these other segments of the market." And they're a German company. And they said in Germany, everybody's so concerned about privacy that, you know, really HomeKit had such a big adoption and it was really all that mattered. And so they weren't worried about sending stuff over the cloud. And I think that's an interesting thing to point out here, too. So as a manufacturer of devices that support HomeKit, you know, you, the user, can choose to just connect that device to HomeKit and totally skip ever connecting it to our cloud, you know, any of that backend stuff. So certainly people can choose that and nothing is being sent back to any other kind of backends. And I think the steps Apple took last year with their router integration even gave users even further control to be able to shut off what devices can talk to as well. And that, you know, so far, I think, has been handled responsibly. I was initially a little bit concerned about how that would happen, especially because we push things like over-the-air updates via the cloud. But certainly somebody who's, you know, absolutely wants privacy and security locked down, they have those options via that ecosystem.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a, a natural kind of outcropping of the approach that they've been taking to kind of simplify that process by integrating kind of Apple's mindset and approach toward this into different vendors' routers. I think that was a smart move on their part. Now, one thing that I do want to just kind of not forget about is that every single one of these vendors, including Apple took a fair amount of heat about six months ago, I think it was when it was discovered by, I don't know, Captain obvious that employees and contractors of these companies actually listened to a portion of the assistant requests, the recordings of people asking their assistants for information or to do something. And they do this for QA and research and development reasons. As people who work in the software and hardware fields, this came as no surprise to us, but somehow was just ripe fodder for the tech press for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks.
1: Yeah. And I know Apple's response to this was to make more of an opt-in for these kinds of recordings sent, and i think you know some people have you know a problem with this you know being somebody in the industry i'm like okay i want i want them to get my my recordings so they can make this better but it it comes down to how much do you trust them with those recordings and and how that's handled so well
0: and i also think it plays off of without explicitly even saying that many customers still don't trust that these things aren't listening and recording everything. Yeah. So, you know, I I think that the press was playing on that fear, and that's one of the things that kind of stoked that frenzy when we came up with it. All right, so... That's kind of us laying the foundation, laying the platform. These are the different platforms available. There are others, obviously, on the high end. There are others in uh, Asia and other countries. But these are the most prominent, certainly, in U.S. and most of Europe. We'll come back and talk about the different smart home capabilities that they offer. But let's take a quick break first for sponsors if we have them and then we'll return with more discussion
1: okay so we are going to talk about some of the capabilities of these different platforms so on the device kind of accessory side amazon still has the lead here in terms of having the most devices that they support They have, you know, native APIs for lighting, shades, HVAC, AV control, appliances, and more. You know, and I think uh, I was sort of a witness because of the customers we work with of there was there was a problem that, you know, when they had to bless all the different categories, it sort of limited the pace of adoption every time. And we'll talk about this with some of the other ones every time. Somebody wanted to add a new type of device they had to you know create a create a set of requirements for it and you know what it's supposed to do and so since then, I don't remember the exact term for this, but they've added a way that's sort of a blend between a smart home skill and a custom skill and our partner Moen was actually one of the first to show this off with what they can do. Um, with their shower device, which is still one of my favorite smart home devices that I have, and Richard thinks it's weird <laughs> <laughs> i don 't think it 's weird i don 't think it 's weird, but that's that 's one of the reasons why I can talk to the Amazon assistant and say, "Turn on preset two uh you know turn the shower to preset two that 's not a native function that you could do, but because of this kind of new mode, um, you can add more capabilities. Google is kind of a close second for the number of devices they support. They've got native support for lighting, shades, HVAC, some AV stuff. And I think theirs is a unique one in that they don't really need to add different device support either. What they have is building blocks. Think of this kind of like Legos. And, you know, there's one Lego piece for turning something on and off. There's a Lego piece for brightness, there's a Lego piece for, you know, temperature. And so if you wanted a, you know, a lamp that had running water that could do brightness and temperature, <laughs> you could make that with their building blocks. Nobody would buy that, but you could make it because you can put all these pieces together. So you really only have to work with them if you need a new Lego block. But in, from what I've seen uh, of what's available, it's all there, everything we would have ever needed. So for the most part, you know, they offer a lot of the pieces there, and you can you can kind of put those together. Homekit still kind of lags on device support. I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that it's a firmware you know and hardware focused effort as well as kind of the certification requirements. And you know for some people that isn't necessarily worth it. And as you mentioned, you know, it used to be that you had to have a hardware authentication chip on the device. There is a software option for that, but that software option is not for small companies. It's not a small implementation in and of itself. And so the economics usually aren't there unless you're somebody of a Wemo size brand, which is who the first one is was to do that. So... The chip is cheap enough that, for the most part, that's still what I would guess 90-plus percent of devices are choosing.
0: Now, The thing that I found interesting, and we mentioned this before with HomeKit, is that they've already kind of predefined. Here are all the device types that we support. You can extend, perhaps, what they do or what they report, but these are the things we support. What happens if you want to build that lamp that pours water, like how do you do that with Apple?
1: You have to work with them directly to add that as a new device type. So that's something that takes time. It takes a rev of iOS. You know, it's, it's not something that happens uh, quickly or easily. And because all of their stuff is so tied to their platforms, It's not like Amazon or Google where you could just finish the spec for it and then throw it up in the cloud and it's done. you got to wait for a software release or update or something like that for that new device spec to fall into. So, yeah, so I think that's created some of why there aren't as many devices that support HomeKit, but they always add new ones. And uh, we have a WWDC coming up. You know, maybe we'll see some new categories added then.
0: I don't know if I'm going to take bets on that one. I think I'm (laughs) betting against that this year. I don't know.
1: Yeah, we'll see. I would just take an, you know, uh, I would just hope for a HomeKit session.
0: Yeah, anything on HomeKit, something on HomeKit, please.
1: We'll have to make a side bet. We can talk about it on Twitter. (laughs) So the next one is kind of the onboarding experience. So for Amazon, Echoes come pre assigned to your Amazon account. Assuming you bought them online. Yeah, if you bought it from from Amazon, um, which can make for a nice experience.
0: Yeah, it really does. I mean, just plugging it in and it being recognized automatically is very, very nice.
1: Adding skills can be a little bit weird. And, you know, I think I've always found this to be kind of strange too, like the the whole smart home experience where you have to add the skill and then it can find the device. It's kind of clunky.
0: Yeah, and surprise, the UX that... Amazon built in the Alexa app to find skills is just awful. Surprise!
1: We could do a whole app of you just complaining about Amazon UX. <laughs> um, and then you know it can automatically find some in-house or or partner products and some of the paired ecosystems. And uh, what you put in the notes here was often left wondering. Now what? Like, it's not very graceful of a process.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. So, okay, I added this device or it just found it. And again, it's really amazing when I add something to my Ring app, for example, and then, boom, I get an alert on my phone that Alexa's added it to my devices that she knows about. That's awesome. I love that. You're like, okay, so what do I do now? There is no real guidance in terms of next steps or how you might want to use the device or configure the device. So it's it's challenging, but I I would say that this is probably, you know, this is better than, say, I don't know, Google's? No, I have to think about that. (laughs)
1: Uh, they're, they're equally difficult so you know google has some auto discovery some they don't find uh it's confusing and it's always changing
0: and that's the thing that drives me crazy right
1: the google home app and
0: how the menus and settings and different tabs and everything how that's set up it's constantly changing that's just the google agile agile mindset
1: yeah and their devices offer to add services like hulu or you know google music and things like that and and i'm like hulu why would i add hulu
0: to my google assistant what i don't even understand what that's for
1: (laughs) (laughs) i don't know uh, it may be a better interface than Hulu, which is a, a garbage app for uh, navigating things.
0: That's true. It, it is changing, though. So that's good news. Okay. I, I have to imagine that's for their display devices yeah. or maybe for Chromecast. But it's just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around why I want a specific video service in my Google. I don't know. I don't understand.
1: Yep. And then adding smart home stuff. You know, not all the smart home things are listed. You know, they definitely have some of the bigger brands up at the front. And my understanding in talking to them is, you know, that's based on numbers that, you know, once you get to a certain tier, then you get a logo early in the list. But it makes for kind of a crummy experience for somebody who's, you know, further down the line. We, We did something right when we picked a C name. Get up further in the a- alphabet.
0: Yeah, you're higher in the second list of vendors to go through. But then there are companies, depending on how they built their software and how long ago they created it. And I'll use my smart blinds as an example. You can use the Google Assistant to control my smart blinds if you have the my smart blinds bridge. But my smart blinds or Tilt or Smarter Home, or whatever the company is calling itself these days, does not show up in the Google Smart Home products list. It's just not even there. So to add it is a completely different process than normally going through your Google Home app.
1: Yep. And uh, lastly, you had Bluetooth here. I've never actually used Bluetooth with a Google device, but uh, you seem to like it. It's awesome.
0: It's absolutely awesome. It is quick and easy. And this is why I'm so excited about seeing what else they might be able to do with Bluetooth. Because Bluetooth is kind of the underdog in the home control stuff. There's a lot of people that do not like the idea of Bluetooth for smart home. I think you're somewhat in that camp. And so the fact that they made it so easy and that they can do it with third-party devices, I think that is a big step forward.
1: For Apple, the experience is inconsistent. I would say it, it's evolved over time. You know, sometimes it's pretty easy. Most devices now come with a QR code. Sometimes it's a pain in the butt. You you mentioned uh, the soft code. So these are likely the software devices that are using the software authentication. They have to generate a code uh, in app, and that app experience can be a little bit weird.
0: Oh, it's, it's, I, I don't know if you've ever provisioned any of these devices in your HomeKit ecosystem, but I've done the Abode implementation and I've done the Wemo implementation. You mentioned earlier, Wemo was first out of the gate. It is awful. The process was just absolutely awful to go through to get that code and, and tie these things together. I think that on the abode side, they made it a little bit easier, but it's still really awkward. And here's the thing that I worry about with provisioning Apple devices. We've talked about this before. It's one reason that we love this app so much. Don't lose that code. You do not want to lose the code for your devices. Some devices that are very small like for borrow devices, they don't have a code on them. Most of them have the code on them, but they don't have them on them. If you lose the code and there's not an NFC chip in there to pair it, it can be, you you could be out of luck. You have to have the code. So we like to recommend an app called HomePass, and we'll have a link in the show notes to that. We know the guy who developed it. It's a really nice way of basically keeping a vault of all your HomeKit codes.
1: I was going to mention on the soft thing, uh, you know, the soft codes. The the most recent HomeKit device I've added, I think, was Eero when they added support for Eero. And I think maybe they fixed that soft code process because I don't remember having to, like, write it down and enter it in somewhere else. So, Or at least Eero handled that in a better way. Good. I'm glad to hear it. I appreciate the, the mention of NFC which you wrote here, the NFC pairing is magical. This was something when we built the in-wall outlet, um, we really wanted to get right. And um, we felt like that NFC experience, um, you know, could be a really good one. And it's something that will always be there. So you don't really have to worry about um, losing that code. And with our device being in a wall, you know, you can't exactly easily get to the back of the device. And we felt like NFC was less obtrusive than um, something, you know, I, I think iDevices had this little flag that they actually patented, which was clever,
0: but, you know, it's, it takes up space.
1: Yeah. And complicated design and, you know, I could break off or whatever. So, you know, I, I think with the price of NFC now, maybe you'll see more of it. Um, but there really are very few devices that that use it. So next uh, in terms of things is device organization. So Richard's favorite app, the Alexa app, (laughs) (laughs) captures devices and scenes added for products. Creating groups is really the only way to bundle these. I'm a big fan of groups. I think it does a good job. Uh, And you can assign aliases and things like that. A device can be part of more than one group, but there's like no native concept of favorites or anything like that.
0: So you could create a favorites group if you wanted to do that. I I think my, my biggest angst here is when, when you bring this stuff in and you want to group things together, like there's no concept of location in your home. A group can be anything. Maybe that's good because it can be very flexible or it can be a room, but you can't alias. Like, like you can create a group. In fact, let me say that differently. You have to create a group if you want to alias an existing scene or device. And what I mean by that is if something, if you, if you have a device and you want to be able to refer to it, not only by its name, but by that thing that your spouse, partner, or child insists on calling it and it's not the way it's been named and it's not even logical, but you're tired of pissing them off so you want to make sure it's named the right thing and it knows how to respond to it, the only way to do that is to create a group with that one thing in it. There's got to be an easier way.
1: I think one thing that I'm really a fan of groups for was you know, you can put an Echo device in a group And that allows you to give very simple commands like, hey, lady, turn on the lights. Right. And it will only respond to the lights in the group with that echo.
0: Yep. Yep. And we'll talk about that a little more, too, because I think that's an incredibly handy capability that I still haven't been able to get to work in my home.
1: So Google captures devices and scenes for the added product. They let you assign a device to one room. They also have no favorites.
0: Yeah, and I think their lack of favorites is a real problem. Uh, You can only put something in one room. So that means you can't have this idea of grouped stuff across rooms that make up something like your favorite devices that you want to get to quickly. And it's one of the in my opinion, many limitations of the way they manage devices in the Google ecosystem.
1: So HomeKit lists out your accessories, uh, not scenes. It lets you assign devices to one room, and you can have favorites, uh, and you could add multiple HomeKit scenes. And
0: this is where the power of HomeKit, I think, becomes so obvious. Unlike all these other systems that pull in the scenes, that were defined already in the ecosystem that your devices uh, already exist. So, for example, if you're bringing your let's call it lev- your your Lutron devices into your Alexa or Google Home environment, then it also brings the scenes with it. And that's really powerful. It's it's nice that you can call the scenes directly. But in HomeKit, you have complete control over scenes. You create the scenes in HomeKit. And that means that you can put anything you want in any scene from any vendor together. And that's incredibly powerful.
1: Yeah, and I think we're going to talk more later about... Um... You know what we do personally, but I think one thing just to call out here is, you know, most of this type of automation I leave to HomeKit and and do it in that in that ecosystem. Yep. So uh, in terms of control, you know, the Alexa app has always been pretty pretty terrible, terrible from the
0: beginning. From the beginning, it, you know, I have we talked about all the device nodes, and I have like two hundred nodes in there or something. It's unusable with with. That much stuff, yeah. and it they they have to figure out how to make this work better for systems at scale.
1: Maybe it works better for people with twelve things. I don't know I wouldn't know either, but yeah, I, I would think <laughs> it's probably you know the people that are building it are looking at that experience with four or five devices they're not looking at any at richard's scale, right, which is
0: frustrating any anyway i my pitch to Amazon again, please just start over. Just, just please start over with this app.
1: Please call Richard. <laughs> call me. He's available. Alexa also enables you know room control and by grouping devices uh, and Echo devices together, we mentioned that earlier. Um, you know, Google Nest device in a room will control that room's accessories.
0: Same sort of thing. It works exactly the same way except google's actually works for me
1: yeah i don't know why that uh, i don't know i'm going to have to come to dc and help you troubleshoot someday, <laughs> someday. uh the, the google home app uh you know it's getting better it's it's kind of a disjointed experience with google assistant but they're working on it it's constantly changing with alexa and google non-native device support is awkward you know trigger phrases tell this vendor skill name to do other thing. So in that case, both Alexa and Google assistant are getting a lot more native integrations.
0: Yeah. And that's really necessary. Like we still, unfortunately are at the point, I believe in with Delta, which was the first faucet to come out to support voice assistants where you have to tell Delta to, well, you tell your assistant to tell Delta to pour a quart of water. And by the time you do all that, and the same thing with my smart blinds and anything else that I might have around the house that uses a third-party skill that isn't natively supported yet, the more that these ecosystems can add, then the less awkward that's going to get because you can just tell it to pour water or to open the blinds or what have you. And that's what's so different from those ecosystems and HomeKit, because HomeKit already knows what types of devices it supports.
1: Yeah, and I think that comes from having that, you know, we talked about how it can be a pain because they have to lay everything out for you when you add a new device, but this is the end result of it, which is that there's no complications, there's no custom skills, it's just kind of All laid out, and then it just works that way.
0: Yeah, and and following that same mindset, then Siri knows about, like knows as proper nouns, the rooms in your home, the accessories and what you've named them, and the scenes that you're using it recognizes them and auto-corrects to them if it hears you say something because they are in its dictionary, which is brilliant.
1: Yeah, I think that always seems to work pretty well, is a lot smoother than the voice fights I constantly get in with Alexa. (laughs) Yeah. So, and the home app, you know, it's still one of the best out there. iOS 13's been a little bit of a uh, interesting, bumpy ride. But I would refer back to our State of HomeKit episode number 179 uh, for a further discussion of that.
0: I tend to believe that the Home app is probably one of the best simple home control apps available today. Full stop. Regardless of ecosystem. In HomeKit, I, I wish it did more. I understand why it doesn't. But I, I feel like it is also my first go-to. I first go to it to try and do something, either starting to create a scene or whatever else. And then, if I have to, then I'll go to a third-party app.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, sort of the double-edged sword is it's the lowest common denominator. So, they don't support, you know, a lot of custom stuff. They're kind of just supporting the standard characteristics, standard capabilities. Great example on our stuff is, you know, you can't use uh, the characteristic in HomeKit of when a device is consuming power or how much, uh, you know, how many amps or Watts it's drawing where you can do that in our app through HomeKit. They don't support that natively, but if they were to, it wouldn't be as good of an app if they went down all those rabbit holes. So it's, it's kind of a balancing act. And and I think I agree with you. They, they've achieved a good balance. Yeah. Yeah. So now in the automation category, um, Amazon and Google rely heavily on routines Amazon, I would say, has the best flexibility in triggers, um, so you can do time, solar, sensors, voice commands, buttons, geolocation, all kinds of different conditional constraints by a specific time of the day.
0: Yeah, but they don't actually have solar constraints, which is frustrating. So you could have a routine that turns on a light if there's motion somewhere outside and you have to put specific times on it. You can't say between sunset and sunrise because they don't have that as an option for constraining a routine, which just seems ridiculous to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, it adds a way more complexity, though, because then you have to know where they are and, you know, time zones and all that. But, yeah, it it is nice to be able to set those solar based ones because then you don't have to change them throughout the year
0: and i would argue they know that already because they offer solar events like sunrise and sunset even with offsets to trigger a different routine you just can't constrain a routine with those attributes so it's it's clearly just like a development backlog priority issue right now not a technical issue
1: So Alexa also now offers home and away modes, Um, so that's not something I don't think I've ever used that.
0: Yeah, I, I think it can be very powerful if it's set up right, and the idea being that when you're away, certain things may or may not happen, or when you go away or when you come home, certain things might trigger automatically. But to be able to constrain by whether someone's home or not, I think that is very helpful. And it's something that HomeKit added, I think just like a year or two into its initial
1: implementation. Google still only allows triggers by voice or time, no solar here. And the rest of it is long overdue. So a lot of it got removed by Nest. There's no conditions, no concept of modes. Again, kind of Nest related stuff.
0: Yeah. And this is Kind of my frustration with Google Home, where the Nest ecosystem offered all of this stuff, like the idea of home in a way, and being able to build on that, or uh, having some nice conditions on things, or triggers from devices. None of that is available in Google Home yet. We're still expecting it. They still say that they're delivering it. But really, we're only at the point where you can use exact time or... You can use voice phrases to trigger a routine in Google Home. And that's ludicrous. It's just absolutely ludicrous. Not even their own devices. And the activities that those devices might uh, have can trigger a routine in the Google ecosystem. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that voice triggering because this is one area where they shine So you can create multiple aliases for any voice command that you create in Google Home. So let's say, for example, I want to be able to open my blinds, and I don't want to have to go through all of the different things. Or maybe I want to wake up or whatever, and I have a bunch of different things that I'm going to do. Maybe I say it one way. Maybe my partner says it a different way. Maybe a guest might say it yet a different way. I actually have four, no, five variations of how I might ask to open the blinds and five variations of how I might ask, you know, open the bedroom blinds, open the blinds in the bedroom, open the blinds. Just these different ways that you can do it. And it's going to trigger on all of those. I love this. Amazon, where are you on this? This is crazy that you can't do this with Alexa yet.
1: I would say, you know, it's great that you can do this, but I also would want, you know, you shouldn't have to also. Like, we shouldn't have to do that work. It should be able to interpret those things for you.
0: I would agree, but I think when you're creating your own command... It gets a little bit murky. It's yeah. it, it's a harder issue than if they have a command that has a bunch of different variations and the Google just figures it out,
1: you know? Right. I'm trying to remember which one of this is, but it might be Amazon where we supply that list of all those variations. It's Amazon. Yeah.
0: There's a very there's a very specific syntax that you use to define all the different ways that you could ask a particular question. And just, I've gone through that process with a vendor before. That is an an arduous process to really think through all that properly. And inevitably, you're going to forget something in terms of maybe a colloquialism of how people in a certain locale may say something versus uh, something else. Yeah. So it's tricky. Now, another thing on that voice that is worth calling out is that Google lets you create a voice command to trigger any Google Assistant command. So if you have something like a Delta faucet, I don't think Delta works with Google Assistant, but let's just say that it did. If you have a Delta faucet and you had a command to say, my Google thing, tell Delta to pour a quart of water, you could create a command that's just pour a quart. And it would. You just address it and you say pour a quart and it sends the long command and ends up triggering that. I think that is incredibly
1: powerful. Yeah, that's really nice to be able to to do that. I would again say... It'd be nice if you didn't have to, and it just it could just figure that out for I you. I agree. Baby steps. HomeKit here offers kind of the most capabilities and flexibility, including device status, and it's all really built around scenes.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting about that is you can create a, an automation in HomeKit that only controls one device. Behind the scenes, so to speak, it's actually creating a fake scene that it's putting that device into, and then it's controlling the scene. Everything in HomeKit is in scenes. And that's why in some HomeKit-compatible apps, you can't edit or create an automation for just one device. It only sees the scenes. Your app is a good example of that. Your app implements it just the same way that Apple's own app implements it. You only can include scenes as the things that you're going to automate as a result of the trigger. So this, I think all the different things you can do here, above and beyond anything else, HomeKit has the greatest automation capabilities including knowing whether everybody's home, someone's home, nobody's home. It's amazing all the different things that you can do in their ecosystem. But like we said before, can't do it on home. And frankly, I've never found one app, just one single app that I could use for everything that I want to do.
1: I have to use multiple different ones. Yep. I have a whole folder of them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and we mentioned earlier like because of the requirements and security and things like that it doesn't scale well beyond you know those apple certified devices there are some options unofficially you know whatever with Homebridge and hoobs which apple tolerates Tolerates. Tolerates is a good word. (laughs) And uh, on one of the other podcasts I listened to, I I really got a kick out of it. They said, like, you know, don't tell me I can do it through Homebridge. You might as well just tell me it doesn't work. Just, you know, if I can't do it simply, just tell me it doesn't work. Don't tell me, well, if I download a Raspberry, you know, get a Raspberry Pi and put this, you know, like, just tell me it doesn't work.
0: It's a completely fair perspective. I had taken the same stance for years. You know, on the other side of that argument... We have colleagues who are like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with HomeBridge. HomeBridge works perfectly. There's nothing that anybody can do that would make it stop working. I don't believe that statement. I think that is a, a false sense of security, but it's powerful. And I will say, after setting up my own Hoobs server, I am really, really happy with how Ring devices and Nest devices integrate seamlessly in my HomeKit
1: ecosystem. I still have to play around some with, some more with that. So, to do there. But yeah, no no ecosystem seems to uh, allow you to trigger automations from an external system like I, IFT. Yeah, I hate that.
0: Like I would love to be able to use smart things, for example, to trigger an Alexa routine. That would yeah. be very helpful. Now, HomeKit has the best way of working around this ever, which is that HomeKit is device status aware, and you can build something based on the status of a particular device. So whether it's an actual device like a switch that you just threw, or whether it's something that you're using to proxy the state of something, you you have the ability to to get into homekit and then trigger other stuff to happen in homekit that's crazy powerful
1: yeah i've seen some interesting weird hacks with this too where somebody would take like a lutron lamp dimmer and you they would say like if the lamp dimmer is set to you know and it's not plugged into any lamp it's really just being a proxy like that. And if the if dim level for this lamp dimmer is 2, then do this. If dim level of this lamp dimmer is 5, then do this. And we will link to <laughs> my article about how to set that up in exactly. our show notes. <laughs> there you go. So reliability-wise, Richard, what would you say is the most reliable? Hands down, HomeKit. Hands down. Like, it's not even a competition. I would
0: say... That my echoes are 50% reliable in understanding what I'm saying, and then maybe another 50% reliable in doing what I wanted them to do as a result of what I said.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we can talk about that more later. (laughs) (laughs) How about you? I would say, yeah, absolutely. HomeKit is the most reliable and the the most stable. It's always my backup for when other things are not working.
0: I will say that the Google Home experience is very good and very reliable. And sometimes when I cannot get Alexa to turn something on for me, I can get the Google Assistant to do it. So, you know, I have no explanation for why that is.
1: Yeah, how about application preferences? What do you, what do you like to use? Well,
0: I mean, I think I've spoken before about how I have echo dots all over the place. So, you know, I use the Alexa app for some routines, but I also have Instion, and so I use Instion scheduled scenes, which are far more efficient than a scene in any one of these other ecosystems. And and so I'm still using them and trying to figure out how to integrate with them well. I still use SmartThings to automate some stuff. Again, probably because of Instion. I have a third-party plug-in to let me support Instion there. And I use HomeKit automations. How crazy is that? I have four different engines. Actually, five because I recently added a You Know Me routine. I have five different engines driving stuff in my house based on what they can and can't do because one system can't do it all. That alone is fodder for another episode sometime. Um So my first request is always to Alexa because I prefer to just shout into the air rather than like wrist lifting. Oh, I know the hassle of lifting my wrist and talking to... My my uh, watch, but I will say that as as we say that HomeKit is the most consistently reliable, my watch responding when I want it to is probably least reliable.
1: Yeah, if that worked, uh, I feel like one of the old watch OSs worked better than than this one currently does, and I, I don't know, it's not as good as it was.
0: I mentioned that I have a Nest tub on my bed nightstand. I really like that. I love that device. It is it, it it is tempting enough and so good enough that I'd be willing to convert all of my dots to Echo or to uh, Nest Minis if in fact everything that I used was supported and they had a better routines ecosystem. Right now it's just not there yet. So, um you know, I, I know I'm using these two big companies stuff. I don't care about them having my information. I know they have my information. But at the same time, I've mentioned this before, I don't have cameras in my living spaces. I have cams in the basement and garage and lots outside, but nothing in the house. That's one line I won't cross. And then as a control app, shouldn't be a surprise, Apple's Home. I love the Home app, and that's my go-to Anytime I need to control something other than my Insteon devices.
1: How about you, Adam? Same echoes all over the house. I think we talked about this in the past. Like it, you know, I just kept getting them for free or at conferences or things, or I just kept getting them for free or cheap and it just, you know, kind of happened that way. But, oh man, do I get frustrated when they don't work? And my biggest nightmare command, and maybe I've talked about this on the show before, is uh, I have a routine called Good Night Chewy. Chewy is the name <laughs> of my dog.
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: And so s- this like works, I don't know, 50% of the time. My-, my wife the other night said, I think we might need to abandon the goodnight Night Chewy phrase and come up with something else. Because sometimes I get Good Night Julie as a response. Right. I think having Good Night in there and maybe Chewy is hard for it to understand but it's like you know you should have some ai that says i'm hearing a command at you know whatever 10:30 11 at night and it's always the same damn command <laughs> just expect this <laughs> expect that you're hearing good night chewy and just do it right don't tell me good night julie don't tell me good night you know whatever it, sometimes it, it just it'll start playing a song Sometimes it's played a song throughout the house, waking up our children. It's Ugh. like, I don't even know what you heard. I
0: I think I, I, And I think that's the result of their engine not being context aware. It doesn't know the names of the people in your home or your pets or anything else. It's, it's unaware of the proper nouns it needs to know.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the most frustrating one. Um, the second request is always to HomeKit. Usually that's what I use. And, uh, you know, I mentioned it's because of the ubiquity of speakers that Amazon is first. If there was a $50 HomePod, I would probably do an experiment in going all in in that. I think the one thing that would hold me back is I really like the intercom capabilities most of the time in, in uh, Amazon Echo devices. And my kids use that a lot. Uh, especially when their mom is sleeping and trying to take a nap and they like to make announcements and wake her up and that goes over real well. <laughs> but the one thing I, we talked about earlier that, you know, Apple's lacking is like that, that display device. I really like our echo show in the kitchen. I like the large screen format. I like the little news and entertainment stuff that pops on there. They're often fun and entertain Interesting. It gives me something to do while I'm cooking. It's a, it's a nice nice device.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I, I think I think Apple would really benefit from something that had a screen on it, but it would just be exorbitantly expensive.
1: I mean, iPads are less three hundred some dollars now, so you know you can get a pretty cheap iPad. So,
0: well, there's the irony, right? You can buy an iPad cheaper than you can buy a HomePod.
1: Yeah. So, uh, and then lastly, uh, you know, like we mentioned, I have a Google Home in the family room, mostly for testing and those hard to, hard to ask questions that uh, the other assistants would fumble all over. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, that was quite a
0: lot. Hopefully, if you're listening and you're still with us, you got a bit out of that. You have a better understanding of what the different ecosystems could do. I do have a quick question for you before we go. If someone were to ask you, because I'm sure people do, they ask me all the time. If you were to get one of these things in your home, which one would you recommend me getting?
1: Uh, probably an Amazon Echo.
0: Yeah? You you recommend Amazon to people?
1: Yeah, typically.
0: I think for me, the answer would depend on whether they're an Android household or not. I think if you're an Android household, Google Home makes more sense. Yeah particularly if you don't don't have one now because your your threshold for what you're expecting out of it in terms of all the different things it could support is going to be lower than someone who's been using, for example, an Echo for the last five years.
1: Which if you don't have one, I don't know what you're waiting for because they're basically giving them away. I just got an offer the other day, (laughs) I think because I'm a YouTube premium subscriber, that they're just like, here, can we send you a Nest Mini for free? Yep, They come with everything. It's crazy. You're not you're not trying hard enough if you don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. well, we do have a question this week before we get out of here. And this week's question came from uh, uh, the backlog that we have. This one is from a listener and friend of the show, Keith Lunsford, and he asks, Does anyone make a good connected latch set? There are dozens of deadbolts, but few latches. The closest I've found is from Schlage, but it requires a $10 a month Nexia subscription and a bridge for remote programming. This is a really good question. And the answer is that most lock manufacturers are not actually making latch sets. They're focused on deadbolts. And part of the reason for that, I have to imagine, is because that's a much easier DIY replacement job. Replacing an entire latch set on a door would probably require that most people, I doubt this is the case for you, Keith, but most people probably would need to hire a contractor to help with that effort. And do you really want the contractor dealing with the smart lock thing? Probably not. So maybe now that means that you're working with a home pro. And it just gets expensive. I I do know that Schlage makes a number of different models. Yes, they do need a bridge. I don't think you're going to find that you can really get away from that with a connected latch set. I have not seen a connected latch set yet that is all Wi-Fi and can work without a bridge. There is another manufacturer that makes beautiful latch sets, and that's Baldwin. And the Baldwin Evolved brand is essentially Baldwin's implementation of Kivo built into Baldwin locks. It's Baldwin, they're expensive. They're probably more expensive than any other lock in this category that would be like flirting with smart locks. I think these probably start at about $600. So they're all solid metal. You know, you know, They're tons of different finishes. I have a Baldwin Evolved Deadbolt and Handle pair, so that's the other thing that you could consider is that while not all the smart manufacturers make a handle set that's a complete set, sometimes they make latching smart deadbolts or matching smart deadbolts and then normal handles or latches. So you could use them together so that they at least look like they're from the same family. I have one more recommendation and this is a weird one, but it's a product that I love by a company called Igloo Home. The Igloo Home Mortis Solution is a really good smart lock. It has a very intentional contemporary design, so that may not work for everybody. But what I love about this thing is that it's a smart lock that's not technically connected to anything but your phone and yet you can use your phone to assign it smart codes and they'll work it's kind of like magic they use this algorithm based on like time location encryption and some random seed, and your phone knows that if at such and such a time your lock created a new code on it, that okay, then your phone knows that code. They just it they they figure it out mathematically.
1: Cool. And I would say, you know, for me being fully connected as a lock, you know, to Wi-Fi is not super important. I still use a Schlage Sense, which is Bluetooth only, but it connects to HomeKit. And really, the functions we use is the number pad for unlocking the door, which is by and far what it gets used for. The one piece that's nice to have HomeKit for is I get those entry, the lock, unlock notifications from HomeKit. Right. So that's the one piece that is nice to have. But otherwise, I wouldn't see a big problem with having a non-connected you know, lock.
0: Yeah, it really depends what your use case is. If this is for your home, where your device and your phone are occasionally going to pass by each other, then something that isn't necessarily connected to the cloud might be enough for your needs. Igloo Home can actually be used for stuff like vacation properties and and rental properties. I still can't wrap my head around how that works, but it does. (laughs) So that is something to look into, again, if you're looking for that. Now, that doesn't give you the ability to just dynamically open the door for someone that's on the phone that says, hey, I need to get into the house.
1: Yeah.
0: But... It depend again. It depends on your use. So hopefully these are some options. But this is one area where we just have not seen a whole lot of product yet.
1: All right. If you have a smart home question, you can send it our way on Twitter using the hashtag #AskSmartHomeShow. And uh, thanks again to everybody who sent those in. Uh, we'll keep them coming, and uh, we'll pick a question every week to include in the show.
0: All right. Well, this has been a very long one. Maybe we're making up for the weeks when we didn't have an episode, but
1: where can people find you if they want to catch up with what you're doing, Adam? Sure. You can catch up with me on Twitter at Adam Justice and everything my company's working on at uh, ConnectSense.com.
0: And you can find me at Richard Gunther on Twitter and what I'm writing or reviewing we're podcasting about over at the digitalmediazone.com. The Smart Home Show is part of technology.fm. It's a collection of tech-focused podcasts that includes Home Tech, The Food Tech Show, and my other show, Home On. And smarthome.fm is our website where you can find all our show notes and details about each episode. You can send us feedback at feedback at smarthome.fm and finally if you're looking for our show it's in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you happen to listen. Do us a favor tell somebody else about the show or leave us a rating or a review. That's going to be it. Thanks very much.
1: Thanks for listening.